Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Good morning and welcome to Exceptional Women on Magic 106.7. It's Sue Tab, and today I'm excited to be joined by a very accomplished scholar. She is Natasha Trethaway, an English professor, a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet, and best-selling author. Natasha is in the spotlight today not only for her remarkable work, but because she will share some of her life experience and insight as the featured speaker at this year's Funny Women Serious Business event. It is a live stream event that will benefit Rosie's Place, an organization that provides vital programs and services for more than 12,000 women in need each year. Welcome, Natasha. Thank you for having me. Well, we are excited to talk to you, but I want to first just get to know you a little bit. You have quite an impressive resume. You are a Pulitzer (laughs) Prize winning writer and two-time poet laureate. How did you become interested in poetry as your sort of preferred means of expression? (laughs) Well, that is a difficult question. Um, You know, um, an easy answer is that my father was also a poet. And so from a very early age, I heard my father reciting poems, both the poems that he was studying when he was a graduate student and the poems that he was writing. So tell me a little bit about how that interest then parlayed into, I'm going to study this and I'm going to make this sort of my life's work. Well, you know, um, I started writing poetry um, at a young age, but of course not thinking that it would be anything I wanted to do um, in terms of my life's work. My mother was killed when I was 19. And not long after that, I tried to write a poem about it, about my grief, about that unfathomable loss, Mm -hmm. because it occurred to me then that poetry was the only vessel that could begin to contain that and speak of it for me. It took me years after that to to really decide that um, poetry was my calling. I, I first went to graduate school thinking that I wanted to write prose, which I've also done recently. But poetry was my first calling, I think, because it was a small container that could hold something very big. And you just referenced um, your mother's murder. Um, Your recent book, Memorial Drive, A Daughter's Memoir, 
tells a very powerful story about your childhood and growing up as the daughter of a mixed-race marriage and surviving um, a divorce and then eventually your mother's murder. Uh, why did you decide to share that very personal story? Well, you know, after a lot of my own success as a poet, after winning the Pulitzer, after being named U.S. Poet Laureate, I found that I was being written about a lot. And when I was written about, my backstory um, inevitably became part of the story that was written. And when they wrote my story, my mother was always mentioned only as a footnote, as a, a victim, a murdered woman, and not the huge presence that she was in my life both before and after her death and her impact on making me a poet. Because as I said, I began to write poetry to deal with that unfathomable loss. And I thought that if the story was going to be told about my backstory and about her, I was going to be the one to do it. That's right. So you could own the narrative that way and tell the story the way you wanted to tell it. That makes sense. How, I guess that begs the question, how are you different because of the unique life experiences that you have had? And how have you embraced that as sort of part of your history? Well, you know, I, I couldn't imagine who I'd be without that experience. You know, of course, we're, we're all made up of the experiences of our past, both good and bad. And I can't imagine the person that I'd be without that loss. And so because I like the person that I am, I don't even want to imagine another. I know you also teach, correct? Yes. You teach at Northwestern. What draws you to that? And what do you hope your students might take away from your classes? It's really wonderful to get to have conversations with people who are also interested. It's a, a, a mutual collaborative discussion about poetry and the way that we make meaning in our lives, the way that we find to tell our own stories, to articulate those things that are most necessary for us to say. And I hope that my students come away from the class learning that they can find an elegant language that can help them to articulate what it is that concerns them, what it is that they need to speak out for, against, uh, to memorialize, to contend with, that they have a voice and the elegant tools of poetry can help them find it. When you teach, can you recognize the talent right away in a student or can it be developed? Like, do you have to have sort of just something that makes you a good poet, just sort of it's in your genes, or is it something that can be cultivated? I think that one can cultivate the craft of poetry, ways of learning how to hear the rhythm of syntax, to measure the line, the musicality of poetry, how to focus on um, an image in order to see not only its literal possibilities, but its figurative possibilities, its metaphors that are inherent as well. But I'm more interested in, along with those techniques, those elements of craft that make up the poet's toolbox to help students find the wellspring of their own material. And that is a thing that I think that we all have. And some of us may be more interested in learning how to cultivate the craft. You know, there's there's an old saying in creative writing that when um, a student comes to you and says, Um, I want to be a poet because I have something important to say. You discourage that student. 
But the one that comes to you and says, I want to be a poet because I like fooling around with words, that's the one you encourage. Except my father, who was also a poet and a professor, said the exact opposite thing to me when I was a child. He said I would need to be a writer because he knew that I was going to have something important to say. Growing up black and biracial in Mississippi, um, born on Confederate Memorial Day, exactly 100 years to the day that holiday was first celebrated in the state of Mississippi, um, in the aftermath of the Civil War and the attempt to inscribe white supremacy onto the landscape um, in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. He knew I would have something to say, and I just needed to find the tools to say it. So I think I can recognize the students who have something to say, and Mm -hmm. I can help them find the tools to say it. You earned a Pulitzer Prize, um, one of your collections, Native Guard. What was it like to get that kind of recognition and honor for your work? I mean, there aren't a whole lot of people that can ever say, (laughs) I won a Pulitzer Prize. What does that Mm -hmm. collection sort of mean to you? That was the first collection that I devoted and dedicated to my mother. It was it was the first time that I was trying to, in a book of poems, contend with that grief. And I saw it as um, a monument to her in words, something that I thought could last longer than a piece of stone above her grave. So it meant everything to me that the book got that recognition, because for me, it felt like I was creating that monument to my mother. Your mother was obviously not only a huge influence in your life, but it sounds like a role model. What would you say would be the most important thing you learned from her? And what do you think she would think about what you've done since? Because it seems as though she'd be awfully proud of the work that you've put out. I suppose a combination of resilience and perseverance and determination. She had such strength of character. She was stoic and resilient in the face of the greatest of obstacles. And yet, in in spite of everything that she faced, she loved me powerfully. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I take. And it sounds like you still carry that with you today. I do. Why, um, Natasha, is it important for you to get involved in an event like the one at Rosie's Place? Of course, Rosie's Place... um, helps homeless women and families um, come out of poverty, um, and they do an event every year. It's called Funny Women, Serious Business. What drew you to that? That event, by the way, is a live stream event that takes place on November 9th at noon this year, and you will be the featured speaker. What drew you to that event? Well, you know, I think we can't stress enough the importance of organizations that do this kind of work that provide shelter and services for women in need. There was a moment in my life that when my mother knew that we had to escape, and the only way to do that was to run away and to find a place where her ex-husband, my former stepfather, could not find us. She went to a shelter. And what's always striking to me is that People seem to not understand that the need for a shelter can affect many different kinds of women at all stages, um, all socioeconomic levels, all levels of education. Um, My mother talked about 
um, the women at the shelter being surprised that someone um, with her education and her employment would find herself in need. Mm. And yet one never knows. Mm -hmm. And so we need these organizations. Yeah. And thankfully, we have Rosie's Place is just an incredible organization with such a history. And, you know, I'm sure they're very grateful to you for being part of that event. I have attended the event many, many times, and it's it's just a fantastic event. So thank you for being a part of that. And thank you for spending some time with us today and for sharing your powerful story and your work and for all you do to support organizations like Rosie's Place. You are truly exceptional. Thank you, Natasha. Thank you so much. It was good to talk with you. Poet laureate and best-selling author Natasha Trethaway has been our guest for the first half of this edition of Exceptional Women on Magic 106.7. She will be the featured speaker for Funny Women Serious Business, a live stream event to benefit Rosie's Place. Now we are joined by Rosie's Place Development Director Michael Oliver, who can talk more about the mission and good work of this organization. Hi, Michael, and good morning. Good morning. Let's first talk about Rosie's Place because it's much more than a homeless shelter. You not only provide meals and shelter, but a wide range of support services, advocacy, education, job resources. Talk a little bit about that for us. Sure. Uh, Rosie's Place has been around since 1974. It uh, it was founded by Kip Tiernan um, as the first emergency shelter for women in the United States. Um, and I think sometimes when I think that 1974 is the first one, that that seems a little shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was. Yep. Uh, we've been around and we have changed. As you said, we've uh, over the years become much more than a shelter for poor and homeless women. And uh, more recently, we have responded to unprecedented needs with unprecedented care, uh, providing the women who turn to us with day and nighttime shelter, meals, groceries, expert advocacy, housing and legal, mental health and employment assistance, and so much more. Yeah, and with the pandemic, Michael, talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about how that has impacted your organization. Sure. Well, like everyone else, we were trying to build the the, the plane while it was flying, um, Mm -hmm. but we never closed our doors, not for one hour, not for one day. Wow. Um, Instead, we... We increased staff, we built uh, capacity across programs, and we continued to serve the women who turned to us with the unconditional love. That's the hallmark of what we do. Um, One of the areas of growth was the staggering um, increase in food insecurity. And so our food pantry has now increased to serving 350 women every single day. Uh, and they can come once a week to visit us. That's triple as many women as we're serving as we were serving um, prior to the pandemic. That's a Besides startling that, statistic, actually. Three hundred and fifty a day. Yes, a day. Wow! Wow! Um, and yeah, and and it's you know that is something that is not letting up. We are better positioned within the like the food chain, and um, you know we are not not experiencing you know those kinds of um, supply issues. Mm-hmm. But the uh, amount of need um, is staggeringly high. How, Michael, is Rosie's Place funded? Talk a little bit about how um, how you guys raise money. We receive um, only private money. We don't accept any funding from the government. And so um, corporations and foundations, as well as individuals, community groups, affinity groups, um, you know, 
school groups and bowling leagues and friends who are doing LARPing and all kinds of other things. All these people are part of the community that is Rosie's Place and support us in our work. And what about volunteers? How heavily do you rely on volunteers? We love our volunteers. We miss having them in at the level that we used to have them in prior to the pandemic. Um, but we've come up with other ways to engage um, via uh, the Internet, um, you know, things like GoFundMe. We have on our website opportunities for doing food drives for us, preparing um, toiletry kits and personal needs kits for our guests and other group activities that they can do and they can stay connected to Rosie's Place even if they can't be on site um, and they can make a direct impact on the quality of the lives of the women um, who are coming to Rosie's Place every day. The women who do come, how, how do you find them or how do they find you? How do they reach out for help? Well, they can reach out in a number of ways now. I think that it's it's well known that on the street, the word on the street is one of the most effective ways for people who are struggling with homeless to share with one another um, services that are available to them. Um, but we also have implemented, um, because of the, the pandemic, helplines so that women who can't get to us easily can now connect with us easily through the phone. And so we have helplines for our advocacy programs. We also have a legal helpline. We're increasing our eviction prevention efforts through all of this help uh, by 70% to help women um, with the oncoming uh, crisis of evictions and moratoriums ending. How long, Michael, does do residents stay? I'm sure it, it's different depending on their circumstances, but on average, how long w- would they be with you before maybe you can help them get out on their own again? You know, it's different for every woman. We do have an overnight shelter, and that is a 21-day stay shelter, which is different than most overnight shelters that are only one night. So the women who are in our overnight shelter have three weeks to unpack, you know, literally and figuratively um, all of the things that are going on in their lives and plug into the services that we have there and the support and the stability of overnight shelter for three weeks. But beyond that, women who are coming to us, many are housed, um, but still struggling. And there are other women who are homeless and are staying in other shelters. We're with them as long as we need to be. And often, you know, their stories are, you know, they're not a straight line. So women will come to us for one thing. And if that's all they are looking for at that point, they will maybe not come around for a while, but they can come back. And so many of our guests have come back to us at different times in their lives for different needs, knowing that Rosie's Place is always there. And because we don't accept government funding, um, the way that we can support women is more immediate and um, more meaningful. How does it feel from your standpoint working there? I mean, there's something that drew you to this kind of work to see Mm -hmm. the impact that a place like Rosie's has on somebody's life trajectory because you're you're literally changing somebody's life. I think it's a two way street, actually. Um, I work amongst um, really talented and dedicated women and men on the staff who could do other things. They could be in the private sector. They could make more money. They could, you know, do whatever they want. But it's the mission. The mission to us is so vital. And everyone is dedicated to that on the staff. And so because we know at the end of the day that if we've done our job well, a life is better. 
Mm-hmm. That is kind of uh, like the pillow that you lay your head down on. Talk a little bit before we let you go about the event. I know it's become sort of a signature event for you. I've been many times. The um, Funny Women Serious Business event. It's generally a luncheon, but this year it'll be um, virtual again. Talk about that, the significance of it, um, and how the money used um, or how the money raised is used. Sure. Well, it's our flagship fundraiser. And as you said, it's going to be virtual again this year. It's a little bit different this year. Last year it was completely recorded. And this year we will have some live in the studio elements, like um, when Susan Warnick and Karen Holmes Ward join us as our co-hosts and Natasha Trethaway is speaking to our attendees. But it's vital for our fundraising. It brings in nearly a million dollars and that money goes to all of the services that Rosie's Place uh, provides every single day. It's a great way for us to bring thousands of friends together to update people on what is going on at Rosie's Place, to tell stories, because the stories are really the embodiment of what our guests um, bring to Rosie's Place. Mm -hmm. Um, They are stories that they entrust to us. And their stories that they welcome us into. And so um, this um, event allows us to share that with our supporters and our, as I said before, our community. The women and men who believe in and stand by us and help us do the work that we do. Yeah, and I know Susan and Karen have been involved for many years. They're, they're great. They make it fun and upbeat and inspirational, really. Yeah, we're so, so lucky to have them and they are wonderful to work for and work with. Yeah, well, we wish you so much luck with the event and with your work in general. Thank you, Michael Oliver. We wish Rosie's Place continued success in your vital work to help homeless women and provide services to bring families out of poverty. Once again, if you'd like to learn more about how you can support the programs provided by Rosie's Place, you can visit rosiesplace.org. Michael, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you to Poet Laureate and author Natasha Trethaway and Michael Oliver of Rosie's Place for joining us today. We are grateful to you for sharing your work and your unique insight. You are the change makers we seek and we applaud you for the difference you are making in our communities. Again, to learn more about how you can support the important work of Rosie's Place, visit rosiesplace.org. You've been listening to Exceptional Women on Magic 106.7. It is our honor and privilege to provide a platform for people who are out doing meaningful work in our communities. Thank you for paying attention and for helping us to create engaging programming. We'd love to hear from you if you know someone who is making a difference. Just email or send us a message on our Magic Facebook page. I'm Sue Tab, and along with my co-host and producer, Kendra Petroni, we'd like to invite you to join us every Sunday morning at 7.30 for another edition of Exceptional Women. Have a great day.
This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Odyssey is giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. (laughs) 